Father in heaven, just thank you so much for this uh, this time to gather and worship. Thank you that you're here with us. Lord, just like the words of that last song, nothing compares to the promise I have in you. Lord, your promises are true. They're sure. Lord, we set our confidence in your word. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Well, thank you, Megan. Um, why don't we have the kids come up? Cohen, Ezekiel, Samuel, Abby. Hi, Colin. Thanks for being the first one up here. All right, I want to read you something. It's from Isaiah chapter 2. I have to move this so I can see you all. Probably need it again in a few minutes. Ready? Listening ears? It goes like this. Well, I'm going to put it in my own words a little bit. It says, this is the word that Isaiah the son of, son of Amos saw concerning about Judah and Jerusalem. Did you hear what I said? What did I say? This is the word that Isaiah saw. So how do you see a word? Yes? In a book. Oh, yeah, in a book. That's really good. Wait, say it again. If God says something to you. If God said, so if God says something to you, you see what he says to you? Sometimes. So, oh, yeah, how? Oh, he said if he gives you a vision. That's right. So Sam is right that you can see a word in a book. But I think this is more talking about what Cohen said. God can give us a vision. Do you know what a vision is? I think we should have Sam preach. <laughs> You're right, Sam. He said, a vision is like you're having a dream, but in the daytime. That's exactly right. Now, did you know that God has lots of ways he can speak to us? Can you think of any other ways? Let's ask, let's ask one of the other kids. Hold on, hold on. Let's see if one of the other kids, what's another way God can speak to us? Through someone else? Yes? I, and I heard the first part. Can you speak up? Yeah, in dreams. A lot. And I thought you were going to say through stories of the Bible. So Zeke said, through other people. God can speak to us through other people. And it's Abby, right? Abby? Okay. Abby said, uh, lots of times in stories of the Bible, she noticed that God would speak to the apostles in dreams. And that's right. And I also thought you were going to say, God can speak to us through stories in the Bible, which is also true. Well, in this chapter that talks about the word that Isaiah saw, it goes on to say that in the last times, God's word would go out from Jerusalem to all the world. 
So I had an idea, since God can speak to us in many ways, and I know that he can even speak through children, and he does, I just wondered, if you, if, what do you think, if God wanted to say something to all of us here today, what do you think he might say? It's something to think about, isn't it? Well, that's all right. We can... I said, if God wanted to say something to all of us, what do you think he might say? Can you say that? That he loves you. Oh, that's right. I think so. Anyone else have anything that came to mind or came into your heart? Yes, Sam? Go ahead. Did you raise your hand because you wanted to say something or because you agreed with that? Cohen, don't touch that. Okay. That's really good. Sam said he, that maybe that's something God would want to tell us. Is that what you meant, Sam? that you can speak about Jesus Christ even if maybe you don't feel like you can. Thank you, Sam, and thank you, Solon. Well, we're gonna have Miss, Mrs. Genevieve and Mr. Trenton are gonna take you all back now. So we're not gonna do the whole back and forth thing. Just from here, we're just gonna go straight back, okay? So we'll wait for Mrs. Genevieve and Mr. Trenton to come up and they're gonna talk to you more about different ways God speaks to us and how we can listen to God when he speaks to us, okay? Oh, wait, we should do, uh, Travis always does like a break in the middle. <laughs> what can we break in the middle on? Word? Yeah, word, because God, word came to Isaiah in the vision, okay? Or in, he saw the word. Everyone put your hands in the middle, yeah. or if you want. Cohen. Wait, what were we saying? Word. Ready? One, two, three. Word! Word. I, I mean, I could just sit down and we just think about that. <laughs> like, I just love... Sam, especially his, you know, such a gift. Um, I, um, yeah, I, I feel like it, it's been like other times I've spoken. I, I should take this opportunity, you know, if I can, to uh, to talk with the kids and and like just like Travis does. It's such a great um, way to you know, have them involved, but also for us to hear from them. And so that was really cool. Uh, I don't know, maybe I, I get my fill at home <laughs> in, in general. But, um, but yeah, this, this passage in Isaiah 2, the same one I was talking to them about, has been on my heart the last week and a half. Uh, since since Travis asked, or a little more than that, sorry, but since whenever it was, he talked to me about speaking tonight, and uh, and also when um, Trenton spoke a few weeks ago and talked about the different biblical passages that look forward to the last days and things that have yet to be fulfilled, like this is one of those key passages. So I thought it would be a good idea to uh, look through it uh, in Hebrew today, and and um, and I found some interesting things. The first one was what I just shared, just talked with the kids about, like how do you see a word, you know? And I think that that uh, what Cohen said is exactly right. You see a vision, and uh, and so and and what the others shared was good as well. But let me just go through and and just kind of talk about this passage. Uh, 
so there's this there's this funny thing about like uh with preachers sometimes like talking about greek and hebrew when it's not really necessary you know and it's like you are you trying to make yourself look smart or something but i actually just really like reading hebrew <laughs> and so if you'll humor me i'd love to just read some of this in hebrew not just humor me but actually um i do think it's meaningful uh it's not like it's a magical language but it is a way of connecting with the history, connecting with the Jewish people and this ancient uh, civilization that God communicated through. So uh, I'll pull out my um, Hebrew Bible here. I had written some of it down, but. It begins, Hadavar asher chazah yeshayahu ben Amotz. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw or envisioned uh, uses the word. The word there for saw is uh, cognate with the word for vision, chazah. So there's another word for see in Hebrew, ra'ah, and this is the word for vision. So that, you know, helps us understand what's going on. Uh, Al Yehuda Virushalayim about or concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So this vision, this word that he's about to talk about is about Judah and Jerusalem. Vahaya ba'acharit hayamim nachon yihye har beit Adonai barosh heharim v'nisa migvaot v'naharu elav kol hagoyim in the last days, or in the later days, acharit means after, temporally. In the days afterwards, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains. This word for uh, that's often translated the highest of the mountains, in, in Hebrew the word rosh, it normally means first or chief. I, I think that it's a interpretive to say highest because it's like which ones you know what's the the first mountain would be the highest mountain but then also because the um the following uh phrase which is kind of in parallel says and it will be lifted up above the hills i think when i read through this in hebrew i think it's actually more more to the point is it's uh it's um first in terms of importance in terms of its role an influence. So mountains in the Bible and in some some ways till today mainly influenced by the Bible can be symbolic of different uh, areas of influence. It can also be symbolic of different kingdoms. And so um, when it says here, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains or as the first of the mountains, it's saying that the time will come when, uh, and, I, and I think this has, I think I made already have to talk about two aspects of what's being said here. One, there's the actual mountain or hill. I would call it a hill because I'm from the Northwest and we have, you know, 10,000 foot mountains, you know. And so been to Jerusalem and it's more similar to hills we have around here uh, in, in terms according to my perception, I haven't looked at the actual uh, above sea level, everything. But uh, the hill or the mountain on which the temple stood or on which, uh, yeah, by the time of Isaiah, the temple is there, uh, will become the most influential mountain. So we're talking about the literal place on which the the temple mount, which today there's a mosque there and the Dome of the Rock, um, and you still have the, the Western Wall at which the, um, the Jewish people pray and others do as well, and I've prayed there myself. And, um, but then also, there's, I feel that there's something else here about the, the influence of God's kingdom. You know, when it's talking, when it says the mountain of the house of Yahweh, will be the first of all the mountains. It's talking about 
the role of influence that different systems of government, different education, business, and, um, and so forth have in society. The time will come when the, uh, God's kingdom and, uh, you know, um, moving, looking forward, it go, it grows beyond the, the Jewish people. I mean, already now it's, it has grown beyond, uh, the Jewish people to, so that, you know, most, if not all of us are not Jewish. And yet we are part of, we've come into God's kingdom through his son, through Jesus. And so now there's a way in which we are a part of, uh, this mountain of the house of the Lord on kind of a uh, meta top scale level while not negating, not doing away with the importance of the literal hill in Jerusalem on which the temple once stood and I believe will stand again. Uh, So yeah, let me um, go on a little more into this prophecy. I wanna read through this whole prophecy and um, it's only four verses. so let's see, where was I? I read through verse two. Okay. Vahalhu amim rabim vaamru lahu vanaale el har adonai el beit elohe yaakov vayorenu midrachav vanalka baor khatav kimitsion tetse torah. Such a powerful verse. Uh, many, na- many peoples will come or will go. Halku, halach can be can generally go. It's from the verb that means walk, but it's uh, walk has the metaphorical sense of going, traveling. Many nations will go and will say, go or come. And let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways, and and we may walk in his paths. Because out of Zion will come forth Torah, which means instruction. Foundationally, it means instruction. And the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Now let me go on to verse 4. Veshafat bain hagoyim vehochiach laamim rabim vehitahtu charvotam leitim vehanito tehem lemaz merot lo yisa goy el goy cherev and he will judge between the nations, and he will decide between many peoples, and they will beat their swords. I believe it's swords into plowshares. These this vocabularies, but I know the English. I'm used to the English. He will beat, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And they will not learn war anymore. And so, um, there's another Bible. You know, as I was as I was working through this, I was thinking about the different like kind of levels it, on which it works. Like I was re- talking about earlier, how you have this this literal hill in Jerusalem that the Temple Mount is on, and then you also have this group of people. You know, you have the Jewish people, and then you have Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah, who God is building together, and it uses uh, excuse me. Uh, it uses this different symbolic language of the temple, the house of the Lord, to describe the people of God in the New Testament. It says we're being built together as living stones. You know, In uh, the book of Revelation, it describes us as the new Jerusalem. And so 
as I was reading through this, I was thinking about, you know, uh, a lot, a lot of this, you really could say even on a, on a, uh, just direct, um, earthly, you know, like tier one literal level, you could already say has been fulfilled. And so in particular, the, there is a sense today in which that hill in Jerusalem is the most important hill in the world for many people. Uh, you know, Jew, Gentile, um, politically speaking, uh, it is already, it already has a preeminence, not just in terms of God's supernatural plan of salvation and, and what he's doing through history, but even outwardly in terms of the interest of the peoples around the world and the role, the, the importance that it has in decision-making. There, people do say, people from many nations do say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. Maybe not in those exact words, but hey, we're going on a trip to Jerusalem. Do you want to come? You know, when I was in Jerusalem, there's people from all over the world, people from many nations flowing to Jerusalem like a stream. Uh, that, yeah. Um, the, the word of the Lord going forth from Jerusalem. So at the time this was written, you know, the word of the Lord went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and maybe a little bit, you know, had some effects on some of the neighbors, perhaps. Not really, though. I mean, today, the word, the instruction of the God of Israel that was proclaimed first in Jerusalem, both with these prophets and and then later with Jesus coming and teaching in, in Galilee and in Judea and in Jerusalem, it, you know, manifestly has gone throughout all the, word, the world. The instruction of the God of Israel, the instruction of Yahweh has gone to all the world. Uh, but there is, there is one piece which I don't think anyone would say has been fulfilled, and that's verse 4, where it says, in that day, or it doesn't say in that day again. Uh, it says, uh, he shall judge between nations. Now that may, we could say, we can make a case for that being the, true today. I mean, Jesus sits and is enthroned in heaven and he does decide between nations. But this last part, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. No, <laughs> right? I mean, no question. So, so what do we do with this? I mean, we, we have various biblical prophecies that, uh, you know, we've seen portions of them fulfilled in the time of G when Jesus came, when Jesus was born, suffered and died. But then other elements of the same prophecy are yet to be fulfilled. For example, Micah 5 says that, uh, let me just double check this. Yeah, Micah 5, uh, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. This is the right time of year for this verse, right? From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Um, and I'm going to skip down, but you can read through it. This, is continue, this prophecy continues, one continuous prophecy. And in verse 5, it says, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So the only, if you go through the, the grammar, it doesn't matter English or Hebrew, and the only person that that he could really be referring to is this one who's born in Bethlehem. And so this prophecy is talking about a time when Jesus of Nazareth will win a decisive victory against an Assyrian ruler. And that has not happened. Now, in the spirit, there is the, as for, if we want to talk about the principalities that are over Assyria and every other nation of the world, Jesus has certainly won a decisive victory against all of them. 
And so some people would interpret it that way. Um, I don't. I, th- I take it more directly, more just plainly. There's a lot of reasons for that we could talk about. Uh, but, going, but my point in bringing that up was simply to say, and there might be better examples, my point was simply to say that there are prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures of which part was fulfilled when Jesus first came and part will be fulfilled in the future. Another one over which there's perhaps less uh, debate would be uh, Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Uh, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Um, It goes on, and in you know the, the part, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, I mean, this, this prophecy, again, it specifically says... Uh, in the New Testament that this is about Jesus. And, um, and it's, like, it's like it's in process. So it's begun, but it hasn't been finished. There's still conflict. There's still the, in, you know, uh, it, it talks in the middle, the middle verses. I didn't read the whole thing, but in verse five, uh, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So again, very graphic language to talk about an end to warfare. And so just like with Isaiah 2, again in Isaiah chapter 9, um, Isaiah is, is foreseeing and envisioning this coming Redeemer who will bring an end to warfare. So um, what, what I really felt that I wanted to try to communicate today is that this this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2 and many others the other ones i read and many others they they do have we we don't have to actually decide between a literal fulfillment in history with you know the literal ho- mountain on which the temple stands and the jewish people and on the other hand a uh whether you call it supernatural or heavenly or a, a kingdom, an eternal fulfillment among the people of God. And so I just want to put out there and, and recommend that that is, a, that is a false choice to have to decide between, is this about something historical or is it about something heavenly, spiritual, supernatural? So first of all, those terms heavenly and spiritual uh, Paul talks in in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. And he says that we will have a heavenly body. And um, I'm, I'm in this class with uh, Ben Witherington, and he's, he's talked through this. And, I also, and also, of course, N.T. Wright was at the school like last, what, last week or the week before. And so I can't actually remember which one of them was talking about this. It might have been both of them, actually. But this is a a really important thing to understand is that when it says in there heaven a heavenly body and other places in the new testament it's it's not really it's not actually talking about uh what a lot of people a lot of people in our culture think of when we think of heavenly and so we've we're very influenced by plato and by platonic dualism and and uh extreme a uh, extreme form of that which is flavored with Christianity and other religions is Gnosticism. And there's all kinds of, uh, um, you know, manifestations of this in different world religions and philosophies. But it's basically the idea that you have the lower natural earthly realm and then you have a higher invisible spiritual realm, which sounds very much like the Bible, except that there's a opposition placed between them to where the, the carnal, the fleshly is bad, 
the supernatural or the heavenly is invisible, but is ultimately good. And so, you know, and, and this really even to me, although I don't know a lot about uh, Buddhism or other Eastern religions, but to me, it reminds me of what I've heard of Buddhism, which is the idea that, you know, the goal is to let go of the, of the um, physical and to be, you know, become one with the eternal oneness, you know, well, that's not the New Testament view. Uh, so, amen. So the New Testament, I mean, Paul talks about a physical body, a resurrection in Jesus in the Gospels. He's raised, he's physical. You know, they feel him. They say, wait, are you real? Yes, he's real. He's still real. Uh, he could come and stand in the middle of us and I would definitely fall over and, you know, but he would be real. We would be able, you know, if we could get close enough, we could touch him, you know. And, um, and so how do we think of that? Well, one of these, you know, great New Testament scholars that I sat under last week uh, described it as, as the idea is that there's a naturally empowered body, naturally activated body, and then a supernaturally or spiritually empowered body. So both of them are bodies, they're physical bodies, but one of them is empowered by the Spirit of God, is activated and receives its strength, receives its life, you know, from the Spirit of God in a different kind of way than, than we do in our current um, state of existence. And um, so, so let me, let me jump because I uh, sort of <laughs> went on a side trail and lost a little bit of my train of thought. But I was planning to go to this passage anyway, which is uh, John 4. So let's look at John 4 because this kind of puts the question to it. For me, John 4, verse 19, this is uh, Jesus and the woman at the well. My Greek's not as good as my Hebrew, so I'm not going to try that. But um, in any way, I just really love Hebrew more anyway. But that's me. Uh, so John chapter 4, verse 19, and now I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, the woman said to him, and I'm jumping into the middle of their, their meeting. And I, I trust that most of us are, have read this or are familiar with this somewhat. If not, you can read it all later. Um, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, before I read verse 20, I have to at least set this much background that this is a Samaritan woman, and the Samaritans were essentially from the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, in the process of the history of Israel, when David became king, he made Jerusalem the center of, of worship of Yahweh. Um, but as soon as the, you know, two kings later, so it's David, then Solomon, then Rehoboam, David's grandson, is a, is a foolish king, and, and, there's a, and there's lots of reasons. You can read about it in, uh, I believe, in First Kings. Yeah, First Kings. And, uh, but the kingdom was divided. And at that time when the kingdoms have divided, Jeroboam sets up two places of worship, one in Bethel and one in Dan. Well, later on, after about 150 years, uh, the maybe 200 years, anyway, 150 to 200 years, the northern kingdom is taken into exile by the Assyrians, but some are left behind. I mean, when they go into exile, it's not like they sweep up every last individual. So some are left behind and then others are brought in. Well, the Samaritans are the people who carried on the traditions of the northern kingdom after the exile. And so naturally, that division, by the time they went into exile, there had already been a division between Judah and Israel for 150 years. Uh, and so they, you know, they, they're like, no, we're not going to Jerusalem to worship. No, we're worshiping here. And they're the mountain they're talking about is Mount Gerizim. Uh, there's Mount Eval and Mount Gerizim. I, correct me if I'm wrong, I sometimes get the two mixed up, but it's, I believe it's Mount Gerizim. And to this day, the Samaritans worship and have their Passover festival. I don't know if it continued the last few years with all of the, uh, you know, um, unusual events we've gone through. But uh, certainly up until just the past 10 years, uh, the Samaritans continue to offer the Passover lamb on Mount Gerizim every year. And so this long-standing divide well, it's interesting because as I was, as I've thought about this passage, it's kind of troubled me because it seems like 
Uh, well, let me, let me read the passage first, sorry. Uh, I'm jumping ahead. So she says, I see that you're a prophet. He says, Jesus says, or no, she's continuing to speak. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So this is such an amazing passage. I mean, we could just, again, like we could just sit and think about this. Let me read it again. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, that is Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So, I'm a little conflicted because the heart, like the, the core message of this passage is so overwhelmingly powerful and, and obviously true, but is, you know, and um, valuable that I don't want to like, I don't want to, you know, move to a side issue too quickly. So, but since I'm already on the, you know, since this is how we came into this is talking about Isaiah 2 and the prophecy about the mountain of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, that's kind of where I was coming to this from uh, this week when I was when I was uh, preparing, and it is a little troubling to me because uh, it seems like Jesus is saying you don't. It's not really about Jerusalem anymore, right? I mean, am I alone in this? Um, I think just to make it simple. I mean, not f- for myself as much as anything. Just to kind of like break it down, I think that Jesus in part is sidestepping the question because he cares for this woman. He knows that there's a deep-rooted offense between going both directions, but certainly from the Samaritans toward the Jews. And, um, and at the same time, he is pointing to a, a more important reality. So at this point, I want to talk about the idea of um, symbols and fulfillments. Another term for it is uh, type and anti-type. So if you have um, the, I have two like really good examples, but I'm trying to think of a more basic example. Uh, Okay. It's not more any more basic. It's just as deep. But one example is the Passover sacrifice. And, uh, you know, that every year the Jewish people would sacrifice the Passover lamb. And that was real. It was important. It was ordained by God. It was given by God. And he commanded them to do this every year. Uh, one day... <laughs> Jesus came and fulfilled the Passover sacrifice. He, the Passover sacrifice all along was pointing to a greater reality, not, you know, not just about the people of Israel, but actually about redeeming all creation. And, um, and so, but after Jesus died and rose, uh, the Jewish people, including the apostles, continue celebrating the Passover, at least until the, the temple's destroyed 40 years later. And so even though 
the followers of Jesus in the first century understood that this has been fulfilled. Like Jesus, the, the whole meaning of this, the, the main meaning, the main point of it is Jesus, his death and resurrection, and the freedom that he brings. Nevertheless, they continue to celebrate the Passover and the other feasts. And um, so what I want to say is that a um, finding something to be the fulfillment of a of something else doesn't mean that the former that the, the type is no longer important no longer needed no longer valuable or, or valid another example is uh marriage and this is one that i I've, i don't know i may have said here before because i constantly think of this analogy this comparison but uh it says in ephesians that uh you know in ephesians it, it talks about uh, marriage being like, um, how, how does it approach it? Uh, basically, Paul starts out talking about how husbands and wives are to treat each other. But by the, done, he's, by the time he's done talking about how husbands treat their wives, he's not really talking about that anymore. He's talking about Jesus and the church. And he says, this is a great mystery, and I'm saying that it speaks of Christ and the church. However, husbands also ought to love their wives. And so if you go read through that, um, you see what I mean? And none of us, that there are groups out there, like, a, you know, um, shakers down the road, who have come to the conclusion that marriage is no longer uh, a good institution in our time. None of us would, would be in that camp, and very few honestly would. I mean, we, we understand. I mean, yes, of course, like Jesus and the church, like that is the higher, that is the eternal truth that's like so much more important than you know, our marriage, even though our marriage is important, you know, it's not an either war, you know, it's like, and in fact, the fulfillment, the fact that if anything, you know, really the fact that uh, Jesus' relationship with his people, uh, church, Jew and Gentile, to be clear, uh, is the fulfillment of marriage, it actually elevates my marriage with my wife it dignifies it more and it makes it makes it more even though it was already an amazing thing that goes back to creation and uh that has so much value it gives it even greater worth and value to know that it's a sign that points toward this lasting relationship uh there's we could go on there's many examples but um Too many Bibles, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, I want to just bring it back around to where I started, which is that in this in this passage in Isaiah, uh, I, I see. I think that biblical prophecy frequently speaks on multiple levels, and this is an example of that. And so, I think it's he's actually prophesying about a part in part about right now, and really the times since the come the first coming of Jesus, about the law going forth, the instruction of of Yahweh going forth from Jerusalem, nations flow. Now, this part is more recent. It wasn't until. Uh, middle of the 20th century that nations started flowing to Jerusalem, really the end of the 20th century. Uh, and so that's, you know, I just, um, you know, that's in my, at least in my father's lifetime, you know, fulfillment of biblical prophecy and continuing to be fulfilled. But this, but then this last verse says that, you know, in that time, he will judge between the nations and there will be an end of warfare. And so that hasn't come about, and I believe it will come about, and I believe that we should have confidence. This is part of our, uh, this is part of us being believers, you know? Where I remember one preacher, I said, hey, we're supposed to be called believers. You know, let's believe together, you know? <laughs> and, but seriously, like, to hear, to read, and then have a, uh, a, um, a gift of, of faith flow into us, all of us, not just for one or the other, to recognize that this is true and this will be fulfilled. 
and to have confidence in it. So I mean, like, you know, people in the, our, our great grandparents, you know, in 150 years ago, couldn't have imagined what's happened in Israel. You know, I mean, honestly, they couldn't have imagined many things that have happened in our world, but that's one, you know, that's something that like, uh, I remember there's a, uh, I believe it was Mark Twain, Mark Twain actually traveled to Israel and just talked about how desolate it was, how, you know, kind of hopeless is just a wasteland, you know, in the, I think that's either late, it was either late 19th, early 20th century. And so there's been this miraculous turnaround. And so from our vantage point, it's like, oh yeah, that's amazing. Um, but it's not, it's no longer an element of faith because we see it, we can see it. And so we might recognize that it's remarkable, but still like we can look at a miracle we can, and we do all the time. People can look at miracles and do all the time and not recognize that they're miracles because you have to have that activation of faith. And so it's the same with, with any prophecy and especially, and it's really like brought into focus with prophecies that haven't been fulfilled or ones like this, where part has part hasn't, you know, but at the same time, I want us to have a, a recognition that, um, God is building us together as a people into a temple of the Lord. And it says this at the end of, uh, Ephesians 2, I believe it's, I believe it's Ephesians 2. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So he just got done talking about the ecclesia, the, the, um, assembly of God's people, Jew and Gentile, uh, in all the nations that is being, that is, you know, being built to be a temple of the Lord. And then he says, and you also speaking to this Ephesian assembly, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. And, uh, and so the, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And so like God is speaking on two levels with this. We're not to leave behind or forget the, the actual city of Jerusalem and the, the future full, you know, completion and culmination of this. But at the same time, you have type anti-type one, they elevate each other and they speak to each other we are being built together into God's dwelling place. The instruction of the Lord will flow forth from the new Jerusalem into all the earth. So God is, you know, like we are people in our um, stream of the church in our stream of God's kingdom. We believe in God speaking to us. I was just sitting here, like when I was talking with the kids and I started asking them these questions, the kind of thought run through my head, like, man, there'd be some churches where this wouldn't be okay. You know, like <laughs> what you're talking to my kids about visions and dreams and all sorts of things. And thank God that that's, that's actually changing in many churches, not just our stream, but like we're a people who believe in God speaking. I wanted to, you know, to point back to this and say like, this is, I mean, I mean, we might be uh, more familiar with the new Testament passages and that's great. And they're, they're, there's ways in which they, you know, they certainly say things that aren't, aren't really said so clearly in the old Testament, but like, this is a, um, this is a long-term plan that the Lord has. And I just really wanted to stir us all up, stir myself up and all of all of you with me that like God actually spoke about this, you know, in the eighth century BC that he is going, you know, he's going to raise up the prominence of his house and his kingdom and we are a part of that. We are a part of the fulfillment of that. So I want to transition and um, really like uh, put some of this into practice. And uh, one of the first times forever, whoever was here, one of the first times that Genevieve and I, well, I mainly spoke and Genevieve also shared some, uh, we, we did this um, activation where we we wrote our names on a card and passed it around and then just listened and asked the Lord to speak to us and and wrote out whatever we felt the Lord was saying well I want to do something like that but a little bit different so the way I'd like to do it and the there's a bin with um, three by five cards and pens there so if anyone feels like grabbing those you could start passing those around it's wherever we were sitting <laughs> um, so 
what I'd like us to do is get into groups of twos and threes, and please, if, you, if possible, find someone that you don't live in the same house with and to be in your group, for your, the, whoever's in your group. And, um, and so what I'd like us to do is, because you know, many of us know each other um, fairly well, but well, not all of us, you know, so if you can, if there's someone across the room you don't know quite as well, maybe you could, you could um, connect with them. And so twos and threes, if you're in a group of three, then the way you'll do it is we'll just only, if you don't know each other's name, exchange names, and that's it. If you're in a group of two, same thing. But then if you're in a group of three, everybody will pray, will pray together and listen to the Lord for the person on your right, if you're in a group of three. If you're in a group of two, obviously, for the other person. And then... I, I don't want to give too much more direction than that, except for maybe a couple prompts. One is like maybe the Lord will bring a scripture to mind. Uh, maybe the Lord may show you a picture or it just might be a word of encouragement. It could even be a word of instruction and don't be shy about direction if that's what the Lord is saying. All right. So we'll just, I will, Nick, can I join with you? Okay. So, um, yeah, while everyone's figuring out who's, who's grouping up with whom, uh, we'll just wait a, wait a moment for that. Chris, you could join us or them. Yeah. Go for it, man. So, by the way, I did tell the kids that they were going to do, they were going to listen and have the Lord, you know, see what the Lord is saying. Um, we've done this with our kids and actually we got it from a, our church in Oregon and y'all may have done similar things, but just have the kids some, sometimes a fun activation actually is to say, um, we're going to ask God to show us an animal, you know, for the person. And then God shows an animal and it, um, it sometimes is super powerful, you know, like what, how God speaks through it. So for example, uh, when I was, when Genevieve was, in the hospital, pregnant with Solon, and um, she had what you don't have. <laughs> Sorry, to go public. Um, but uh, I got one of these young boys in middle school, they had done this activation, and he came out and he said, um, God showed me a fish for you. And he said, you're able to like uh, swim around and get around obstacles other people can't get around. And that day... Um, I re- is the day that I received the call of, of Solon being delivered early. And I was definitely having to get around obstacles. I didn't, I didn't normally have to get around. So it was like the Lord definitely spoke through it. So it looks like we've all found our partners. And so let me just pray. And then, like I said, if you don't know one another's name, exchange names, and then j- we'll just listen. We'll write down the name and, and just write. And then after that, we can share with one another. And then that'll be all we'll be done after that. Okay. A little early. So, um, Father in heaven, thank you so much for how you speak to us. Lord, thank you that you continue speaking through your word. You speak in many ways, in dreams and visions, and, and through friends, and through just sometimes the most unexpected ways. Lord, I pray you speak to it, would speak to us now. Lord, let your instruction flow forth. Lord, let us be vessels of your, of your encouragement, of your love, In Jesus' name.